So I think what I've found is that the basic structures of society are important to all people. And that's things like family and religion or spirituality or rituals, some sense of marking passages in a person's life and social life. I think those things are very, very, very universal. We're back with Ruth Behar. We're going to talk about Ruth Behar's wonderful book, Letters from Cuba, from Penguin Random House, came out in 2021. It's brand new. It's really great. Ruth, please tell us about your childhood. Please tell us about being in a body cast, how you got there and how that affected your writing and your life. Thank you. Yeah. So my first fictional book for young people is Lucky Broken Girl, and it is inspired by my own story. We had recently arrived from Cuba to New York in the 60s, the time of These Boots Are Made for Walking, that very famous song that Nancy Sinatra sung. Right around that time, we were in a terrible car accident. So if you can imagine being a new immigrant, still trying to make it, my father working three jobs to support us. And we were in this terrible car accident on the Belt Parkway. And I ended up with a very bad fracture to my right leg. And I was placed in a body cast so that the legs would grow evenly. There was a fear that if they didn't do that, if they just put a cast on one leg, then one leg would grow a little shorter than the other. So I was put in a body cast. And of course, it was a really miserable experience. I had been a very active little girl who loved to play hopscotch and run around. And suddenly I couldn't leave my bed and I had to depend on my mother to take care of me. So it was really terrible and it definitely marked me as a person. It changed my life. It made me more of a contemplative person, more of a reader, turned me, I think, into a writer and a scholar because I couldn't do anything. And this is pre-internet. So it's not as if I could just have an iPad, you know, next to me and doing things on an iPad. It was just like, okay, you're in bed. There wasn't even a TV in the room, but my school sent a tutor. So I had a teacher of my own who came and gave me classes and taught me and brought me books. And so I learned a lot during that year. And that was really good because I was still trying to perfect my English at that point. So I spent a lot of time reading, thinking about stories thinking about art. I was also interested in drawing at the time. So I think it was a moment of contemplation in a sense in my childhood that stopped everything and forced me to go more into my head, into my imagination, into my thought process. And everybody in the family said that that moment was a pivotal turning point in my life that eventually made me into the person that I am, the writer and the scholar that I am today. So it was a terrible year, but it was also a lucky year. That's why it's called Lucky Broken Girl, because so many good things also happened. I came to a deeper understanding of life, of myself. And I also developed a real empathy for others who were wounded or hurt during that year. And so I think it also formed me emotionally in really important ways. And as a result, you became a professional scholar. You are a doctor of anthropology. I do have some anthropology questions for you. The most pressing of which is your book, The Vulnerable Observer. Tell us what it means to be a vulnerable observer. Oh my God, that's like the hardest question. I mean, I gave that title to my book, but it doesn't mean that I know what it is. (laughs) But I'll try to say so. And the 25th anniversary edition of the book is coming out this fall. So I'm very excited 
about that. I can't believe the book has been around that long. But so when I wrote it, I was trying to come up with a new way to do anthropology so that the classic way was the anthropologist keeps their distance and then they're observing these other cultures, these other people doing interesting rituals and things, but they always keep this detachment. They maintain this detachment from the people that they're studying. To me, that method didn't work because I found myself getting very emotionally involved with the people I was meeting. Their stories meant a lot to me. I was moved by them. I was worried for them. I cared about them. And I started thinking, well, I'm not this detached observer. I'm a vulnerable observer. And maybe that's good because maybe I'm also feeling and not just intellectually processing what I'm experiencing. And that's how I came up with this idea of being a vulnerable observer. And fortunately, a lot of people have liked that approach and have used it. I definitely got a lot of criticism too early on, but now there's, I think, a lot more understanding that our relationship with the people that we're studying is a very reciprocal one. And we make them vulnerable by asking them to tell us about their lives. And then we become vulnerable when we listen to what they have to tell us about their lives and we care about the people that we work with. We can't just view them as distant objects to be seen on a far horizon. Yeah. And why do you think anthropology took the opposite view for so many centuries? It just seems obvious that you can't not be a human when you're observing other humans. Right. That's the best way to put it. That's how I should have put it. <laughs> you got to be a human when you're observing other humans. Well, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, anthropology began as a discipline during the colonial period, right? So it begins in the 19th century, early 20th century. And so many of the anthropologists at this time are white Euro-American men, and they're going off to places that have been colonized, whether it's Africa or Latin America or New Guinea. They're there as these colonial subjects, essentially. And so I think they viewed themselves, on the one hand, as admiring the people that they were studying and sometimes thinking that they have a more primitive lifestyle, but they have like a more pure way of living. So sometimes admiring their rituals and their spirituality and so on and thinking, oh, I come from this very civilized Western culture and we've lost this in our culture, but these other people in this other place have maintained more spirituality or more purity. So there was this admiration, but at the same time, there was obviously a sense of superiority as well. So I think that had something to do with maintaining distance. And then there was the idea of objectivity, that if you maintained more distance, you could be more objective. You didn't want to get too involved and then not be able to observe properly. You didn't want to mix up your perceptions of yourself with your perceptions of them. So I think there were, you know, these scientific kinds of concerns about maintaining distance and therefore being able to observe better. But then it became very clear that, as you said, we're humans observing other humans. And so what kind of filter are we? So when I'm observing people in Cuba, well, the kind of filter that I bring is very special because I'm a Cuban American. And if I go back to Cuba, I have a certain perception of what I'm seeing there. And they have a perception of me too, as a Cuban American that's going back. So all of that is part of the filter through which we're looking at each other. So those things I feel should be announced to the reader and should be part of the study. And I think initially the idea was that it didn't matter who was observing, that whoever was observing would observe the same thing. My suggestion was, no, it's not the same. We're not going to observe the same reality if we're different people bringing different kinds of perceptions to what we're seeing. I think that's the course that anthropology is taking. They've sort of followed your lead on that, which is really amazing and probably good for the discipline overall. 
I did mention earlier that I'm a fan of archaeology, which is different from anthropology, but the same thing really applies. The thing that fascinates me about it is actually more of the politics and that archaeology changes with political climates and that, I mean, it's really about control of the past. The facts of it are a little bit less relevant than what the facts say about the present day in which the facts are being written up who found them and what it says about the race of the people who found them. So on the one hand, it's like, yeah, there's information there and we can take information from Mesopotamian archaeology and it's right because we found some things made of stone that say things on them. And so we know what they say, but what they thought they said in 1890 is a little bit different than what we think they say now and what we thought they said about the world. It changes. And just reading about the stuff, there's no way that we're any less biased than our predecessors. That's a question I was going to ask you is, you know, you've studied cultures all over the world. You write about how you basically had a suitcase by your bed at all times for decades of your life in your anthropological studies. What have you learned that makes us similar and what have you learned that makes us different? If you can generalize in that way, I know that's a big question. Well, <laughs> it's funny. I remember having this conversation with my brother. It's in a documentary that I made. And he asked me, okay, so you've traveled to all these places and then you get on a bus and you go really far away. And then what do you find out? And he asked me, and then he concluded, what did you find out? People are people, right? <laughs> this is what he said to me. So he said, do you have to really travel so far away just to discover that? <laughs> which I thought was great. He always thought my anthropology was a little funny because he doesn't like to travel. And I'm the one that, like you said, that has lived with a suitcase next to my bed for a long time. So I think what I found is that the basic structures of society are important to all people. And that's things like family and religion or spirituality or rituals, some sense of marking passages in a person's life and social life. I think those things are very very, very universal. I think storytelling is a very universal thing as well. People need to tell stories of their own lives and of their communities to make sense of them. So I think things like that are things that I've found to be important. And memory, I think holding on to memory, connecting with the past, however you do that, again, through legends or traditions or rituals, having some connection to the past and knowing that there were others who came before you and helped make you who you are in some way. They left something, some mark on you. I think that's really important as well. And how we carry that into the future is very, very important. And then there's just the whole natural world and how we respond to the natural world. I mean, my first fieldwork project was in a little village in Northern Spain where People were farmers and, you know, I had never experienced that before and just seeing like how food grows, you know, from the land. And that was an amazing experience and being with people that wouldn't starve because they could figure out how to plant food and harvest it. And I thought about how I didn't know anything of that. So I think that also the whole connection to the natural world is also an important part. Yeah, that's something that we've, I guess, in the West at least have lost. So now halfway into this episode about your book, we should probably at least talk a little bit about your book. So Letters from Cuba is an epistolary novel, as the title would suggest, which I am a sucker for. But tell me why you chose that format. Why did you choose to present it in this way? Well, I love letters. I just love the letter format. It's the way immigrants communicated. 
back in that time in the early 20th century. And I wanted the story to be very intimate. And so I had this idea that Esther would be writing letters to her younger sister. Esther has made it to Cuba. She's reunited with their father and she wants to help bring the rest of the family to Cuba. Things are getting very bad in Poland. There's poverty, there's anti-Semitism, desperation. And so I just thought, well, the whole story was being told to her younger sister. It would just be more intimate. And then the reader could almost feel as if the letter is being written to them. So fortunately, historians have collected immigrant letters and books. So I've read a lot of letters by different kinds of immigrants. And I thought, oh, it's such a beautiful form, the letter. There's a form to it. And I had read some epistolary novels that I liked as well. And so I just thought, let me try this. And then it just flowed so much that I was like so glad to have a structure. You know, once you have a structure, I find that the writing really flows. It's like, I'll just sit down and I'll go, okay, you just have to write a letter. What is Esther going to say to Malka now? And it just allowed the writing to flow. But really because it just seemed like a good way to tell the story. The letters aren't being sent to Poland because that would be too expensive. There'd be too many letters to send. They're living in the countryside. So that's also going to be complicated. So I had the idea that Esther is collecting all these letters for her sister. And the more she writes, the more likely perhaps it'll be that Malka will come to Cuba because Malka will have to read these letters one day that she's writing to her. So I also thought of the letters as a kind of magical form. The more she writes, the more she pulls Malka toward her. And then at the end of the book, they sit together and they read the letters. And so Malka gets to find out what Esther has experienced in this time that they've been separated. Such a beautiful idea. Also, one of the things you did so well was we as readers here in the 21st century, we know what happens if the book takes place in 1938 and 39. And so we have this ticking clock where we know some shit's going to go down in Poland and we don't know for sure that they're going to get out. But the characters in the book, they don't know that's in their future. And that was just so brilliant. I mean, you never say it explicitly, obviously, but it's so brilliant because I was reading this, you know, just with the hair on my neck standing up, wondering whether they're going to make it out. That was a literary accomplishment to be able to accomplish that without really doing anything other than cleverly setting it up. I really loved that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I too, I wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen to tell you the truth. I mean, I knew that the family probably was going to get to Cuba somehow, but I wasn't sure about Malka. I had different versions of the ending, whether Malka would maybe stay behind with the grandmother. I'm sad just thinking about that. I know, I know. And I had a whole ending where she was going to stay to try to take care of the grandmother and not be separated. I had that ending and then decided, no, 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 she's got to get there. But the grandmother stays behind, which is also painful because we know what's going to happen to her. And this is somewhat autobiographical, or I mean, it's not autobiographical, but it's biographical of members of your family. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely inspired by my maternal grandmother, whose name was Esther, and she was the first in her family to go to Cuba and to meet up with her father, my great-grandfather. And all of that was true. And the fact that he wasn't very successful at making money and bringing the family over. And so he wanted help from his children, but he only had enough money to buy one steamship ticket. And he wanted to bring his oldest son named Moshe. But my grandmother was the oldest of all the children. And so she pleaded with him and wrote to him and said, well, you know, I'm a girl, but I'm the oldest. And so I should be the first to go to Cuba. And she always told that story that she was the first that she had pleaded with him and her father had listened 
and had allowed her to be the first. And she was the one that helped bring everybody else over. So that was the part that was the biographical part that I decided to build on for the story. And the family really did live in that small town called Agramonte in the province of Matanzas. And so I also wanted to set the story in Agramonte. I had been there, I had done some research there. I spent a couple of days living there as well and just getting to know the place. And so that too was interesting because that was also where my mother's family had lived. And actually it's where my mother lived as a little girl before they moved to Havana. We just did an episode about True Grit and Esther reminds me a little bit of Maddie in True Grit and that she's just by force of will manages to make all these things happen, <laughs> especially in her first letter where she said, no, 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 you're not getting your boy. I am the oldest. I'm the one who goes to Cuba first. And then her dad says, well, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> exactly. I love that. So is it Santeria? Is that the religion that they're practicing? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. One of the things I learned from your book, I'm sure you did not intend. I love salsa music and I love Ismael Miranda and I love Celia Cruz. I speak okay Spanish. I more or less know what they're saying, but there's sometimes that they're saying stuff. I have no idea what they're saying. And I've learned that they're talking about Santeria saints, like Yemaya. This was a word I've heard in salsa music, but I didn't know that it referred to a saint. Right, right, right. That's what's so interesting about salsa music. A lot of the saints are mentioned, Babalu Aye, a lot of the saints are mentioned in the songs, yeah. <laughs> because a lot of the musicians are santeros. Yeah, well, and bata drumming is very much the root of salsa music. It's bata drumming and jazz harmony and a bunch of other things mixed in. But I would say I have like an intellectual understanding of bata drumming. I have no idea what the spiritual significance of the drums are, but I do know kind of how they work and how they're supposed to sound. But what is your experience with, with bata? Well, I think they're amazing. I've had the privilege of listening to a lot of bata in Agramonte. I was there for a bembe, which is like a spirit party. Bata drums are drummed all night. There's three drums. They're typically drummed by men. And there's a large drum, a medium drum, and a small drum. So you have the three drums being played on their sides. It's very, very trance-inducing. So a lot of people do go into trance during these rituals. So the, the deities will come down. So maybe Yemaya will come down and speak or other deities will come and speak to the people who are assembled there. But the drums also, well, they're trance-inducing and they also just make you want to dance. I mean, you can't help but sort of sway to the sound of it. And it's very beautiful. They're very, very experienced percussionists. And the tradition of playing bata drums was brought from West Africa. It's a Yoruba tradition. And so I've heard it in many, many ceremonies in Agramonte and in Havana. Whenever somebody receives a spirit, things like that, you have the bata drums. So they're quite beautiful. I mean, they're also used in salsa music and just musically, but they have this ritual or religious function. And then they have this more dance party type of function. They can be used in both ways. But the ones that are sacred are special and they're set aside for rituals. They're different from the drums. Might be the same kind of drums, but they're reserved for the rituals. And so I wanted this Polish Jewish girl, Esther, you know, to be in this atmosphere where there's a lot of Santeria, there's a lot of Santeria being practiced. This is a region that in fact has all of these very strong traditions from West Africa. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if this Polish Jewish girl enters, you know, into this community and this is all new to her. She's only been in a Christian society in Poland and here she is where there are these strong African traditions and she's kind of like pulled into this culture and really drawn to it, but also knows that she's Jewish and she has to 
hold on to that identity as well. And so how she feels pulled and how the drums have this kind of strong effect on her. And they really do. I have to say that having been at these rituals that can go on for hours and you're there and it's very, very powerful. So I wanted that to somehow affect Esther and to move her emotionally and musically and also to bring her into Cuba. It's like once she's heard Bata drums, she's really entered into Cuba because there's such an important part. The African influence on Cuban culture is so strong that once she hears the drums, it's like she's entered into a very deep part of Cuba. We're talking about Santeria as if everybody knows what it is because you're Cuban and I'm Puerto Rican and we obviously know what it is. But as an anthropologist, can you just explain what Santeria is for our listeners? Santeria means way of the saints. It comes from the word santo, which means saint. And it's kind of like a popular term for the religion because in Cuba, a lot of people say ocha or regla de ocha, the rule of ocha. That's more the term that's used. But Santeria is the popular term and it's a perfectly legitimate term. And it's a religion that develops through slavery, really, and through the fact that so many people were forcibly brought from West Africa to Cuba and Puerto Rico and other Caribbean nations and Brazil and elsewhere as well. And so these were West Africans that were forced into slavery, but while being forced to do this awful, brutal work, they also held on to their religious traditions from West Africa. Traditions where there are many, many deities, all of them with these very complex histories and stories. And so they brought those spiritual traditions with them, but they meshed them with Catholicism because they had to practice this religion clandestinely or secretly because, of course, the Spanish colonial government was trying to just enforce Catholicism upon everybody. So what they did is they meshed Catholicism with Yoruba beliefs by, for example, taking a deity like Yemaya. Yemaya is the goddess of the ocean in the Yoruba pantheon. And in Cuba, she's the Virgin of Regla. She's a virgin. Her shrine is right near the entrance to Havana, near the port of Havana. And so they started seeing these interesting symmetries between the Catholic religion and the Yoruba tradition. And so they appeared to be worshiping the Virgin, but in many ways or secretly they were worshiping Yemaya. And that way with many other deities, with Ochun, Ochun is another a very important female deity associated with procreation and with the river. And so she's syncretized with La Caridad del Cobre, who's the patron saint of Cuba and so on. And you have Chango, who's associated with Santa Barbara. So you have all of these really interesting meshings of the Catholic or the Spanish Catholic deities and then the Yoruba deities. And it's sort of, they created a kind of third religion in a sense that's neither Catholicism nor Yoruba tradition, but something else. And in this religion, dancing is very important and music is very important. You don't just like go in and pray from a book, but rather you have these chants and these songs in Yoruba that are sung and that call to these different deities. They all have different colors associated with them. It's a very complex system. I'm probably not doing <laughs> justice to it, but just to give you a small and brief introduction. That's actually more than I knew about it. I just knew that it was somehow co-opted Catholic saints, so or maybe co-opted Yoruban deities. However, I guess they think of it as like the Virgin Mary is a manifestation of Yemaya or do they worship Yemaya and they use a Virgin Mary statue so that the colonial powers wouldn't bother them? 
Yeah, I think a little bit of a combination of both. I think the second thing you said is probably how they started. And then maybe the second is more like what's happened now. Now there's a lot of debate. There are people that want to Africanize the religion more and kind of bring it back more to its African roots and remove all of those Catholic layers from the religion. And then there's others that like the Catholic layers and think, well, no, it's a religion that it's a fusion of culture and religion that happened during the colonial period and it became this other thing and we have to respect it as it's come to us. So there's different theories about it and different ways of practicing it. But what I find so interesting is like how fundamental and for you being a music person, like how fundamental the music is to it and that you have to dance. When I've been to these rituals, they don't want you to just stand there and listen and observe. They'll tell you, you know, you've got to also like move your body and dance to this as well. So it's a danced religion as well. Yeah, it synchronizes your nervous systems. There's like the actual physiological things that happen when you dance to that kind of music, any kind of music. Amazing. So I have two more questions for you, if you don't mind. They're easy ones. The first one is the last question we ask everyone, which is just to recommend two books to our listeners. Well, I do love Kafka's Letter to Father, which is a very, very wrenching letter that he wrote to his father. Talk about bullying. We come back to that theme. Kafka writes about how his father bullied him. So it fits in very well with the hundred dresses. It's another way to think about bullying. And then I'll recommend my friend Sandra Cisneros, her book, I Remember You, Martita, which has come out in English and Spanish simultaneously. So two other books that are quite amazing. Well, we'll have to have you back, not to flex too hard, but Ruth and I were hanging out with Sandra Cisneros a couple months ago in Miami. And maybe we will again this year. Yeah, finally. So is Celia Cruz the greatest? She is. Oh, my God. I love her. <laughs> She's the best. The official position of the Book Society podcast is Celia Cruz is the best. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> Ruth Behar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being a good sport about talking about things other than your book for half the episode. But part of the fun of this podcast is that the audience gets to know you and anyone can go find your books. But now they have a great reason to find your books because you're brilliant and interesting. And so are your books. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been a really great conversation. Thanks so much. <laughs> Next week's guest is Lou Matthews. We'll be talking about Leonard Gardner's Fat City, which is a great book. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. Thank you so much for listening. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor. You can reach us at Book Society Pod on Instagram. Also BookSocietyPod at gmail.com if you want to send a direct email. Santiago Ramones is the co-producer and also definitely edits the show. He has his own podcast called Bit Depth. It's really good. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. I think that's the course that anthropology is taking. They've sort of followed your lead on that, which is really amazing and probably good for the discipline overall. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll tell that to my chair. <laughs> <laughs>